When, uh, when I was a kid, I didn't really learn how to fight. I had a younger brother, and we didn't fight much. We were four years between us, and like fighting was very much against the, the rules at home. And I didn't have other guys in the neighborhood that wanted to fight, and so I never really learned a lot of those little boy skills. When I was uh, in middle school, I took a couple years of karate at my church, which is kind of interesting, and I wasn't really very good at it, mostly because I was about this tall and everybody else was, was this tall, I think. But then in college, uh, I learned to fence, and fenced for a couple years in college. And I turned out to be pretty good at that. I really liked that. It was, uh, it was very different than other kinds of combat that I'd tried to do in the past. Um, if you've never tried fencing, it is surprisingly uh, taxing on you. So just imagine, so you kind of go into a half squat like this, and you hold the foil out in front of you with your hand back behind you, and you scoot back and forth for like an hour. It's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Mind games and tricking and trying to score the point without hurting the other person, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And for a young man who needed some kind of physical outlet and learned to need to, or need to learn ag- aggression in appropriate ways and how to view an enemy and what to do on an attack and how to protect, that was, that was a good time for me. Maybe you guys and ladies, maybe you learned to fight with your siblings. Maybe you uh, never really physically fought, but you've had plenty of other kinds of fights in your life. Maybe you fight a lot right now. Maybe you got a spouse or kids or siblings or people at school or at work that you tend to be in battles against. Maybe you've found yourself even in physical fights recently. The truth is, all of us fight. I think about my oldest daughter, Emily, in Michigan, who is fighting for the life of unborn babies in Michigan. What they've been doing the last few weeks and what they will continue to do up to the November election is mostly they're going door to door throughout the state of Michigan, knocking on doors and trying to convince people to vote in favor of life in November. Now this week, uh, an elderly lady who was doing that door to door canvassing was shot by a homeowner who didn't like her pro-life message. But that doesn't stop Emily and her co-workers from continuing to work. They continue to fight on on behalf of those unborn babies. There are lots of fights in our lives, and some of them are easy to see, and some of them are hidden. Sometimes in the church, we talk about this idea of spiritual warfare. We have different ideas about what that might mean. Today, we're going to look at the main passage about it, and rather than trying to critique different ideas about spiritual warfare, like maybe you've learned this, and maybe you've learned this, and maybe it's not quite so right, what does the Bible say? We're just going to focus in on what this particular passage says. So whether you've learned stuff about spiritual warfare before, I pray that you'd kind of set stuff along the side and just focus in on what this particular passage of the Word of God says. It's going to tell us about battles. It's going to tell us about our enemy. It's going to tell us about armor. It's going to tell us that we are in a fight. Now, this is a drastic change for the book of Ephesians. If you've been paying attention through the whole summer, you have heard various things over and over in the book of Ephesians you have heard the idea of walking a lot. 
Maybe you didn't notice, but in 2.10, we're told that we, uh, I'm sorry, in 2.2, we are told that we were once dead men walking in our sins. In 2.10, we're told that God has prepared good works that we should walk in them. In 4.1, we're urged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God. In 17, we are told to no longer walk in the sins of our past. In 5.2, we are told to walk in love. And in 5.18, we're told to walk as children of the light. But then we get to this last section of Ephesians 6, and the verb is very different. We are not told to walk. We are told to stand, to stand firm. We see this in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 24. If you're going to read along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 979. The first verse says this, verse 10. Finally, of all the things that I've told you already in these first five and a half chapters, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And I hope that that verse alone is an encouragement to you today. Because Paul could have just said, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be strong in your own might, try harder, work harder, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you're strong, so go out to battle. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That is really good news for us because our might is not so impressive. Think about the hurricane that came through Florida this week. Imagine yourself uh, standing out on the beach as the swell is coming in and the winds are just ripping things apart. And like Gandalf standing against the Balrog in Lord of the Rings, you stand at the, at the edge of the hurricane and you say, you shall not pass. How's that going to work? The hurricane's just going to swallow you up. It doesn't care. We don't have much might on our own. But we serve the all-powerful creator, sustainer, even judge and eventual unmaker of the universe. He has all power. And he provides the power that we need to do the things that he asks us to do. It's good news for weary soldiers. The Lord is strong even when we're not. Here's how Paul goes on and describes this. Verse 11. Put on the full or the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There's lots of stuff in there. But notice that at the beginning and at the end, it's framed with this idea of standing firm. This is a, a military idea. This is what soldiers are told to do as they, they hold the line. They stand firm. I think of the movie Braveheart. It's been a long time since I saw Braveheart, but uh, lots of memories as I was looking for pictures this week. 
In one of the key scenes in the movie Braveheart, the Battle of Stirling, the English, who are in full armor, on horses, heavy cavalry, they are barreling down the field at the Scotsmen who are in their leather clothes and their homemade shields and axes. And Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace, has a secret plan, and that plan is dependent on those soldiers holding, standing, waiting. And so over and over again, he yells to the soldiers, hold, hold. And as the horses barrel down on them with their lances down, ready to skewer these guys like shish kebabs, they hold, they wait. Until at the last minute, they reach down and they, they grab those long, uh, sharpened tree limbs, bring them up, brace them against the dirt behind them, and the cavalry horses skewer themselves on those tree limbs. If those guys had gotten up and ran away as the horses were coming, the whole plan would have fallen apart. But they held. They stood firm. They didn't get up and charge. They stood firm. They didn't cower in fear. They trusted their commander, and they trusted his plan. It's hard to stand in battle, though. You probably have memories of times, or maybe you're going through a time right now where you feel like you're being tested, you're being tried, you're being attacked, you're being beaten down. Somebody or something is relentlessly trying to take you down. Maybe you stood firm or standing firm. And maybe you emerged victorious, though beat up and wounded. Maybe you gave in and you experienced humiliation and failure. When the next battle comes, will you be able to stand? What do you need to be able to stand? Sharpened tree limbs are probably not what you need. The armor of God is what you need. You are told by the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to put on the whole armor of God. God loves you as a child. He wants to protect and equip you. And so he gives you his army, his armor fitted perfectly for you so that you are ready for the battle that you will face. We might want to ask, who are we fighting against? Well, ultimately, we are fighting against the devil, against Satan. He is a real being. He was the highest of angels before rebelling against God. He is a serious foe. He is strong. He is well-equipped. He has a huge army, and he's tricky. He's crafty. In the passages that we just read there, it says that we are to stand against the schemes of the devil. Rarely is his attack open and obvious. If Satan showed up in all of his sulfurous nastiness, we would recognize him right away. And we would see him for the enemy that he is, but he's tricky. He's sneaky. He plots and schemes. I think of Jesus openly rebuking Satan and the demons through the gospel stories, how, how prevalent that was. It seems like every time Jesus turned a corner, there was 
another evil force that he had to confront. And yet, our battle today seems different. Satan knows that in our culture today, highly educated, lots of faith in science and reason, his attack is best done in a sneaky, secret, behind-the-scenes way. But the attack is just as real as we see in the gospel stories with Jesus and the many demons that he confronted. The next sentence, Paul makes sure that we don't misunderstand what he's saying, grab a real sword, and start attacking people. He clearly states that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against flesh and blood, against people. Now, people are involved in the fight, they're involved in the battle, but the, the wrestling, the fighting, the, the real foe that we are fighting against is not flesh and blood. Who's the commander? Who's behind the attack? That's the real question. And he describes them. Here he says, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's not saying evil in heaven. He's using the heavenly places as the spiritual realm. That is the description of your enemy. Invisible, powerful, multidimensional rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you are a materialist, a naturalist, you believe that matter is what matters and that there really isn't a spiritual realm, that there are not angels and demons, then this is total nonsense to you. But I wonder, how do you then describe humans' amazing capacity for evil? Not the regular everyday evil that all of us get duped into or sometimes run eagerly into, but like the really big evil like Hitler and the Nazis murdering six million Jews. Or the Chinese Communist Party currently enslaving a million Muslims for forced labor and forced medical experimentation. How do you explain the killing of 64 million unborn babies legally in the United States since 1972? How do you account for such huge evils if there is no spiritual realm? Evil is real. Satan is real. He is at work. He's plotting and scheming, and he's pretty scary, yes. But we are called to stand firm against this evil. How do we do that? We do it with the whole armor of God. So let's talk about it. Verse 14. Stand. There it is again. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness... And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, we could do a multi-week series just on these verses. Some of you ladies benefited greatly years ago by a multi-week study that I think focused mostly on these particular verses. We're going to zoom over them in kind of a high level, help you understand the basics of them this morning. Let's start with the belt of truth. You must recognize that Satan is a liar. 
Jesus himself calls Satan the father of lies. Now he contrasts that with himself. He calls himself the truth. There is truth and there is falsehood. In our relativistic society, that kind of gets all worked out in the wash. Your truth is not my truth. I can believe what I believe. You believe what you believe. We'll just define reality the way that we want. We'll even ignore biological truth. I'm going to recreate myself and my world in my image, playing the role of God because I get to decide what truth is. The Bible very clearly, though, stands against such relativism. It says there really is evil. There really are lies. There really is truth. There really is good. And those things are objective. They don't care what we think. They exist. They're real. How will you know the truth? If you're to put on the belt of truth, the, the thing that basically holds the rest of the armor together, holds your pants up. I mean, imagine going out to battle with your pants around your ankles and your sword just dragging along the ground because you forgot your belt. The belt of truth is first in the list for a reason. How will you know what is really true? In a world that says truth is changing all the time, God has given you his word in the Bible. Will you acquaint yourself well with the truth revealed to us by the truth so that you can wear it as a belt that holds everything else together? The breastplate of righteousness is a piece of armor that guards your chest, your belly, your most important vital organs. It prevents you from taking a spear to the heart or the lungs, and without it, you don't stand much chance against a well-armed foe. What is this breastplate? What guards our hearts and saves our lives? It's righteousness. Righteousness is a weird word. It's basically the, the state of being in right relationship, specifically right relationship with God. It's not simply being right, having the right answers. It's being in right relationship with God. But Paul's writing to people who, who already know that. They're, they've already been made right with God. They know the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God came in the flesh Jesus Christ took upon himself all of our sin, died in our place so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have eternal life with God, so that we could have his righteousness. Jesus took our sin. He gives us his righteousness. They already have that, though. And yet Paul reminds them because we need to be reminded our hearts wander. And that breastplate of righteousness guards our hearts. You and I need reminded every day, probably multiple times a day, that our righteousness is nothing. It is only Christ's righteousness that saves us and protects us. So we're reminded here. 
How will we understand the righteousness of God? How will we receive it as a gift that it is, continuing to receive it as we are sanctified and made more holy? How do we do that? Only through the Word of God. We don't know the righteousness of God without the gift of the Word of God. The next thing is the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. It's quite the title there. Shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. We've already said what the gospel is, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Why the shoes? Why the readiness? Because we are meant to go. Think of the Great Commission where we're told to go. Make disciples of all nations. Multiple times in the New Testament, we are sent out as ambassadors. Paul would use that word for himself in just a few verses. Ambassadors, representatives of the gospel, bringing the gospel to those who desperately need it because they need the gospel of peace because they're currently at war with God. If Jesus has saved you, you have been turned from an enemy of God into a son or daughter of God. You were at war with the king of the universe, and through the gospel, Jesus reconciled you to God the Father, bringing peace, and there are billions of people who need to know about that. And so when the gospel is mentioned specifically in this passage, it's attached to the idea of shoes, of readiness, of going in order to share that gospel of peace, both with people you know and love and with people you have not yet met. How do we know that gospel truth? How do we keep the gospel truth correct? How do we get it straight and keep it straight? How are we not fooled by the thousands of false and corrupted gospels that are out there? We keep coming back to the Word of God. It grounds us. It explains. It provides the guardrails. It makes sure that we keep a great, accurate understanding of the gospel so that we're sharing a true gospel with the world. Next, the shield of faith. Faith is the idea of believing the promises of God. What He has said He will do, believing He will do it. And even if we can't see how or when He's doing it, that He will do it. We're going to close our service with that new song that we've done for a few weeks and the idea of saying, I don't know what you're doing, Lord but I know what you have done. I believe that you're doing things. I believe you're keeping your promises. I can't see it. I don't understand it, but I know that you are trustworthy because I know what you have done. Our faith is grounded in the fact that Jesus has done what is necessary for us, both for our salvation and for our growth in Him. So we stand in that faith, and it shields us specifically from what Paul says here are flaming arrows from the evil one. Now, we've seen lots of movies, or maybe you played lots of video games, or as a kid, maybe you played you know, Cowboys and Indians, and you ran around the backyard with a pretend, hopefully pretend, bow and arrow with your brothers and sisters. <laughs> Caleb's got a little bit of history there, yeah. I don't know if you've ever just even taken a few seconds to imagine what it would be like to actually take a real arrow to the chest. I mean, there's that fraction of a second of what just happened, and then you look down and you realize there's an arrow, and you feel yourself bleeding on the inside, and there's not much 
time to think about things. Now imagine that that arrow is doused in flaming oil, which then spreads all over you and lights you on fire when it hits you too. How much worse is that? That's the idea of these flaming darts, these flaming arrows from the evil one. And how are we protected from that? We are protected with a shield of faith. So imagine yourself standing in the line and the the hail of arrows from the enemy is arcing up over the battlefield and coming down at you, but you have a shield that you can crouch under, and instead of taking an arrow to the chest, it sinks into the shield, thunk, and is extinguished. And your life is saved. You are attacked all the time with flaming arrows from your enemy. Do you have faith to absorb the impact and extinguish the flaming arrows? That kind of faith is grounded in the truth that we find in the Word of God. It's not an imaginary, made-up, wishful thinking kind of faith. It stands firmly on knowing what God has done in the past and what He has promised to do in the present and the future. How do you know that faith? Again, you know that only from the Word of God. We get to the helmet of salvation. This is closely related to the shield of faith. The war that we're in is, at least part of it, is a psychological war. It's a head game. If Satan simply showed up, like I said before, we would recognize him, obviously, and know that he is the enemy. But He's sneaky, and he tries to fool us. He's crafty and scheming, and he gets in your head, and he tries to take down soldiers without having to fire a shot. Have you ever had yourself thinking these sort of thoughts? You're not good enough. God doesn't really love you. He may love others, but not you. It's all a lie. Jesus would never die to save you. You're hopeless. You claim to be a Christian, but you keep sinning in the same old ways. You're a hypocrite. You're a joker. You're a fake. You are pitiful. You are nothing. And you are mine. That's the head game. The lies that our enemy whispers into our ears into our minds that's why we need the helmet of salvation what will protect your mind from such psychological attacks such head games only knowing that you are saved not by your own goodness as our memory passage makes so clear not your own works only by grace through faith alone christ alone rescues us not ourselves yes we're not good enough but it doesn't matter. Yes, we're hypocrites, but it doesn't matter. We fail. A lot of times we're hopeless, pitiful, maybe sometimes even genuinely like worthless for any good, but God loves us and has given everything to save us. So that that salvation message, that truth that it is grace by faith alone, in Christ alone, guards our head, guards our mind. 
The only way we know that, again, is through the Word of God, which leads us to the last thing called the sword of the Spirit. Now, everything else is essentially defensive, meant to protect from attacks. This last thing is an offensive weapon, though. Now, that is a simplification of the picture because we're not just called to be defensive. Jesus sends us out. We are to take enemy territory. We share the gospel with lost people. They respond in repentance and faith. They become members of the family of God and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God advances as we go on the offense. Kingdom of God is currently advancing in the world. Here in the West, it feels like Christianity is falling apart sometimes. But in other parts of the world, particularly those parts that have tried the hardest to persecute Christianity in the last hundred years, the kingdom of God is advancing fast. Christianity is exploding in China. I believe that the Chinese Communist Party and their experiment is doomed if not from the outside, then definitely from the inside, as they are unable, even with all of their spying, their millions of cameras, they're throwing pastors in jail, and the beating of all of that, Christianity is exploding in China, and has been for the last 50 years. There was a time when basically all the Western missionaries fled out of China, and they were out for like 20 years. And when the first ones started coming back in, they assumed that they would find no Christians. And what they found was millions of Christians as the church went underground and they continued to share the gospel and grow. It's happened in Muslim part of the world. The church in Ukraine is growing, strengthening. Pastors who chose to stay and lead their flocks are seeing thousands come to Christ. Our passage tells us that the sword of the Spirit here, that it's a spiritual sword. It's not a physical sword. Paul's not telling you to grab a sword and go stab somebody who is resisting the gospel. Anytime the church has mixed with the state and given sanction and supported state violence and war, it's always been an ugly, terrible thing. We see that even this last week. This next picture here is uh, the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church. His name is Patriarch Kirill. Kalen, let's put the picture up there, please. Fancy guy. He went on national television and he told all of the Russian would-be soldiers that if you die fighting for the mother country against Ukraine, all of your sins will be forgiven, guaranteed. Not only is that an evil, false gospel, it brings what should be the church of Jesus Christ in partnership with an evil tyrant bent on murder. This man is corrupt. He's a crony and a disgrace. 
In other news, he got COVID two days ago. We'll see how it turns out for him. Your sword, though, is spiritual. What is it? What is the sword that you wield in battle? What is the weapon of your warfare? It is, according to Paul here, the Word of God. God expects us to use the Word of God as a sword. We cut down not people, but we cut down arguments of our enemies. We divide the lie from the truth. We see in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You say, wait a minute, it sounds like that sword is actually more turned on us. It's more like a scalpel doing surgery on our hearts, and that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is getting at here. That's where the main spiritual battle rages, inside of us. It happens in our hearts, and we need the Word of God active in our lives as a sharp sword, as a scalpel doing surgery, sometimes as a sword doing battle, because your heart deceives you. Your thoughts betray you. Your emotions lie to you. And only the Word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword, can discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You cannot discern the thoughts and intentions of your own heart. Your heart is a mystery to you. Your spouse is probably a better source of discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart than you are. Because we fool ourselves. But the Word of God cuts in there and makes a clear division inside of us. When we submit ourselves to the Word of God, when we learn to see the world through the lens of the Word of God and think along the lines of how the Word of God portrays reality, things become clear. Things that were fuzzy before, is this a lie or is this truth? They become divided. Oh, that's the lie. That's the truth. All right, we need to wrap this up. Paul has described the armor that we are to wear so that we can stand firm. He's going to tell us what else we are to be doing as we stand firm. Verse 18, once you've got all the armor on, you're standing firm. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Supplication just means asking God to supply To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He means that literally, he's in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we're to be praying at all times. Yes, There are certain times during the day when we should be praying, times of focused prayer. I think about our Good Friday prayer vigils. We fill 12 hours with people praying in shifts. We pray at the beginning of the service, the middle of the service, the end of the service. We pray at meals. We pray when we get up in the morning. We pray as we go to bed at night. Maybe we pray as we're driving to work or taking the kids to school or whatever it is. We've got those times when we pray. We need those times. And yet Paul's talking about something even beyond that. Praying all 
the time. Developing this pattern, this way of life, so that there's always this conversation going on in the background. As you rise, your first thought goes to God. As something goes really well, your first thought is thank you. As something goes badly and it's a challenge, your first thought is to ask for help. Praying at all times in the Spirit. In in the Spirit is not some uh, mystical, fancy mode of prayer. It means praying in in, uh, agreement with the Spirit. And the Spirit has communicated to us primarily through the Word, so we're praying in agreement with what God has given us in the Word. Asking Him to supply the things that He wants us to have. Not crazy things that we make up on our own. He says to keep alert, all perseverance, like a soldier on the watch, making supplication, praying for all the saints, and then he says, but also for me. And here he could have asked for just about anything. He could have said, so that I can spring out of this joint and be free, right? Pray that somehow God would give me favor with the guards and I could get out of prison. And he doesn't say that. He says, I'm an ambassador. I'm in chains. Pray instead that I'll be able to open my mouth and boldly proclaim the gospel. That's what he's asking people to pray for. Do you pray for yourself that you would have opportunities to share the gospel and that you would boldly proclaim the gospel in those opportunities? Do you pray for other people in this church to have opportunities to share the gospel and that they would be bold as they proclaim the gospel? Apparently, that kind of thing was happening in the ancient church. I think it should today, too. Now, that wraps up the part today with the spiritual warfare. You may have noticed there are a lot of things that I just didn't talk about. If you would like to dive into this more deeply, I've got two copies of a small book that I'll give away. This is called Safe and Sound, Standing Firm in Spiritual Battles. It's by David Paulison, who was a masterful pastor, professor, biblical counselor. Uh, It's a small, remarkably small book for what it covers. Uh, I find this to be biblically sound, solid, practical, and not sensational. This is an excellent guide to better understanding the idea of spiritual warfare. There's two copies. I'll leave them up here. Anybody who wants to grab them, you can grab them after the service. Now, we've got a couple more verses. Verse 21. So that you also may know that I know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. This is the guy who's delivering the the letter to the Ephesians on behalf of Paul. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So this is obviously a very focused little part, talking directly to these guys about this other guy who is long dead. But I, I love that this guy, Tychicus, is described as a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. Think about your funeral. Will other brothers and sisters in Christ stand up and say, he was a beloved brother in the Lord? 
She was a beloved sister in the Lord. Her identity is sister in Christ. And will they be able to say, like Paul says about Tychicus here, that he or she was a faithful minister in the Lord? I'm not talking about Paul, uh, Tychicus being a, a professional pastor. He's saying that Tychicus, this regular guy who just gave up months of his life to deliver this letter and go back to Paul, that he is, he's ministering, he's doing the work of God even as he travels by boat and by foot all over the Roman Empire to deliver this letter. And that he, when he gets there, he's going to encourage them, he's going to build them up, he's going to tell them how Paul and his buddies are doing, but he's going to encourage them. Paul says that. That's why he sent him. Oh, that when we are in our coffin, our friends and our family members would say of us, he or she is a faithful minister in the Lord. Two more verses. At the end of most of the New Testament books, there's a benediction. It's a Latin word. Bene means good. Diction means word. It's a good word. It's what we do at the end of the service where we pronounce a benediction, a blessing, sometimes an encouragement, sometimes a challenge over you. And here is how Paul chooses to end this letter to his beloved brothers and sisters in Ephesus. He says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So what are the things in that blessing? Peace, love, faith, grace, more love, and then more love. Paul loves these people. And he's given them a labor of love in this book that we have worked through for 18 weeks. Our fighting passage ends with a reminder of peace, love, faith, grace, love, and more love. Those are available to you today, even if you're in the middle of a raging battle. As we prayerfully prepare for communion now, I want us to reflect on what we learned today. Ask God to show us how he wants us to develop as soldiers for his cause. I encourage you to surrender again your life more fully to him. That you would come to him in repentance and forgiveness in this time of reflection. You would come thankful for the peace and the love and the faith and the grace that he lavishes on us, his beloved children. Let's pray, and then we'll take a time to reflect. Lord, I thank you so much for this book of Ephesians. I thank you for the great truths, the, the things that ground our faith that are in this book that we've gone through this summer. Thank you for the encouragement in there. Even these last few verses speak of the love and the grace Thank you for that encouragement. Thank you for the things in this book that were really challenging to us. Even today as we think about this idea of somehow being a soldier and wearing armor, going to battle, and all that's at stake in that. Lord, that is 
It's overwhelming. It's scary. It's hard to it's hard to trust you in those things. Yet we know, Lord, that whether we put the armor on and whether or not we trust you, that the battle rages and we are in the middle of it. Our lives bear witness to that. So, Lord, I pray for this congregation that they would arm themselves with your godly armor. I pray that they would run back to your word again and again to be built up, well-equipped with the full armor of God. May you strengthen them. May you shape them into warriors for you. In Jesus' name.